My name is Claudia Green, and this is She Did That, the podcast shining a spotlight on remarkable women who are breaking barriers and proving that greatness knows no gender. From female founders who have raised millions of pounds, the investors changing the landscape as we know it, to survivors of tragedy who have achieved the amazing and many more. We will share the stories of these incredible women who will inspire and empower you. In order to support us and these women, please subscribe on your viewing or listening channel of choice so we can continue our mission of sharing the stories that should and need to be heard. So today's episode is a little bit different, um, but I have a truly inspiring woman who has and continues to inspire people every day with her fight for survival. I'm honored to have Marla Tribich, MBE. Thank you so much for being here, Marla. You've got such a, an important story that I think needs to be shared and heard by the world. And the premise of this podcast, she did that, is highlighting women who have overcome incredible things and achieved the impossible, what is perceived to be the impossible. So I'd really like to start just by hearing a bit more about your childhood. And I know you probably don't remember that much as you were so young before the war started out. But if you can just tell me a bit more about where you were born, your parents, mm -hmm. and kind of the lead up to the war. Uh, yes, so I was born in Poland mm -hmm. in a town called Piotrków. Mm -hmm. So ours was a lovely town, mm -hmm. a very old town. The first tribunal took place there, the first military tribunal took mm. place there. And actually, my town existed before America was discovered. Really? So that tells you the, the age of it. it. It actually celebrated 800 years a few years ago. And were your, were your parents born there as well? No, they were born in different places mm -hmm. in Poland. In Poland, okay. So as far as I know, I know where they, their parents lived, so I assume that that's where they were born. Mm. So my mother was born in a town called uh, Sherads, mm -hmm. and my uh, father was born in a town called Vidava. I, I remember very happy holidays spent with my grandparents mm. and my cousins because the, the one family that was there in Sherrods, they had four children, two okay. boys, two girls. Oh, so you had fun, nice we summer had, holidays we together. Three. I was one of three children. Oh, you were? Okay. I thought you just had one sister. How many? No, so you had I a sister? Had, um, an older brother and a younger sister. You and did. actually my older brother... I mean, he was only a year old. They were practically the same age, but um, he survived. he's the only other survivor of my family. I do know this. Your brother, is he Ben Helfgott? Yes, that's right. Because I saw the, I saw the remake of the television program on the, on the BBC a few years ago. Yeah, And I think he, were, he appeared on the television series right at the end, but it was telling the story of people who came over on the, yes. the kinder transport. I do remember this. But yeah. uh, he didn't come on Kinder Transport, he didn't. actually. He came after the war. Mm -hmm. Kinder Transport came before the war. Ah, okay. He came, so he's been through the camps and everything. He went through them as well. And also, he was a great achiever. He was very well known. He was a um, sportsman, and he competed at the Olympics twice, oh, representing wow. Great Britain. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And then your sister was younger than you. My, yes. What I was, was her the name? I was child of three. 
Her name was Lucia. Lucia. That's a lovely name. Mm-hmm. How much younger than you was she? She was about three years younger. Three years younger. Okay. So but my little... bro- I'm very close to my brother's age. It was only a year between us. Yeah. So what year were you born? Um, at the end of... Um, I was born in September 1939. 1930. Oh, sorry. No. 1930. 1930. It's the war that broke out in 1939. Yeah. So. Before the war started. Obviously, the war broke out when you were how old? I was nearly nine, but I was still effectively eight. Okay, so you were eight years old. In the lead up to the war, obviously, that you know what you experienced subsequently was very no. traumatic, but. If we just sort of try and remember life before the war, Mm. were there any warning signs before 1939? Were there rumblings that a war Uh, might start? Well, there were. And really on hindsight, I'm remembering things that I didn't really take that much notice of. But, Mm. you know, looking back, people from Germany Mm. to live in our town and... um, I thought, why are they coming to live here? Germany is probably sort of perhaps nicer, and why? And I know that there was one particular woman who wanted to sell a doll. The Germans were very good at producing toys, wonderful toys. Mm. And some of these people came out with very little money or no money, mm. and they had perhaps some goods to sell, like to- mm. toys. Mm. And that kept them going for a little while. Yeah, and this was before 1939. Yes, but it was probably in 39 because the war didn't start to the end of 39, September. So it could have been actually in 39, possibly in 38. Mm. I didn't really note the timings because they they were meaningless at the time. Yeah. There were some German refugees, but I had no idea why they had come. I didn't really know very much about the the, the political situation. Mm. So it all sort of actually happened quite quickly when it did start. Yes, it did. I mean, my brother, who was much more, oh, not all that older, but very knowledgeable, mm. he was a very inquisitive and he could read at an early age. Mm. And he would read the papers and he knew an awful lot. And I didn't really, my brother wasn't my playmate. Mm. He had his friends and I had mine. Mm. You know, life was very pleasant. I remember going to the park. I remember going to uh, birthday parties, um, going out with my parents for a walk. Um, The park was really a lovely place to Mm. be in. It was a lovely park. I visited, I have visited it since and it's still lovely it's actually nice as time goes on and there are more things available for parks mm. and after the war I had lost my parents I, they were, there was only my brother and myself left out of our family and um, I never thought about Poland or Piotrkov my town because um, it just seemed like it didn't exist anymore it was just something of the past. Yeah. And one day I thought, it's actually all there. It's still there. The place is there. And suddenly I got this desire to go and see it. And I thought, a couple of hours in a plane and I'll be there. Yeah. 
going to the park, looking through the places where we lived and remembering. And um, eventually we achieved that. But of course, Poland was occupied by Russia after the war and conditions were abominable. Mm. There was such austerity. They used to queue up for bread. Shops were empty. it, it really was awful. I yeah. mean, I learned all that when I visited. Yeah. I didn't know that before, but I knew that it was occupied. Yeah. We did meet people we knew, though. Did you? And they actually recognized us. Obviously, the war came as quite a surprise. Mm. Were you or your family experiencing any kind of anti-Semitism, or were you aware that maybe there was this uh, stirring dislike towards Jews, or were you completely...? Um, I personally didn't experience it very much, Mm. but I could see it all around me. Mm. And I knew that they they used to say, oh, dirty Jew, go back to Palestine, things like that. I don't know if they said the word dirty, I'm translating now. There was an obvious anti-Semitism. It could be seen, even though I personally Mm. never was called anything, and I I don't remember being affected by it. You were probably a bit too young to fully experience, I'm sure, your parents. Oh, yes, I'm sure my parents did experience it. And I I could see it all around me, the same as in this country. I know there's anti-Semitism, and I see it, and I read about it, but it hasn't happened to me personally. No. Well, apart from what you went through uh, in I the mean, war. That's yeah, the, uh, in the war, but yeah. I mean, in terms of this sort of common yeah. um, way of expressing it, that did you go back? Yeah, they used to go. I do remember in Poland, they used to say, oh, go back to Palestine. Um, things like that. But still they weren't said to me uh, personally. I was very much aware of it, yes. Yeah. So when the war broke out in 1939, did your life change immediately or was it more of a a gradual thing? No, I was changed very immediately, actually. Mm. We were the first town in Poland, I believe in Europe, actually, um, to have a ghetto. And the war started on on the 1st of September. Mm. And within two months, we had already been uh, sort of pushed, moved to the ghettos. They just came to your house one day and just told you all you had to leave? Well, we were told they didn't come to our house to tell us, but no, they brought out rules all the time and they were sort of put up. And the Jews all had to move to the ghetto by the 1st of November, 1939. So that was within uh, two months of the war starting. Within two months, we had already been, um, you know, transferred or pushed or I don't know what to call it, um, into the ghetto walls. We often hear about the ghettos and that it's cramped living and poor living conditions. Mm. But really, what was it like living in the ghetto and what was the setup? Well, it it was a sort of microcosm of what it was like anywhere, wherever you lived. 
in the sense that some people were better off than others. Mm. Some people had more money, so they're able to afford to perhaps buy something extra on the black market because everything was rationed. You know, and there were the privileged people because they set it up. Actually, a ghetto is a subject of its own. And they set it up like, like a town, a very small area, but we had a police force. We had um, an admin, Jewish administration. We had a president. Oh, wow. So it was like Our its own... Our president was named Warszawski. But there was this sense of um, helping other people. You know, we did, just didn't turn our backs. Oh, I say I'm including myself because my parents were in a slightly better position. Some people were much better off than we were and some people much worse than mm. we were. Yeah, but the conditions throughout yeah, but weren't Conditions were terrible, but we had a soup kitchen, mm-hmm. which meant that people who really were hard up, they, they never went completely without food or anything because we had rations anyway. Mm. First of all, there was quite a panic when we heard that we had to move into a ghetto within two months of mm. the war. And we... Um, so everybody looked for accommodation. Some people already lived in that. It was the sort of poorer part of town. and But it started in this sort of better. It wasn't all terrible. And um, my father managed to, uh, to find for us a very large room. When I say large, it was larger than a normal room than a normal bedroom for example say it would be the size of say this room here we're sitting in but it was but it was all five of you in one room oh yes and we took an aunt in um at at one point for a little while so that's very cramped for six people living in one room but we had also a kitchen not very big, but it was a, a, not a kitchenette. It was a little kitchen. Uh, so we had that, and it was just for us. Most people didn't have that. It's really, it's really sad that, you know, you felt you were among the lucky ones. But essentially, you'd been expelled from your home, living in a room yeah. with five other people, squashed. But, you know, in every society, in every situation... You always get the better off ones and the less yeah no it's well true. off ones and we weren't that well off. No. There were some people that had better than us, and some people that had hardly anything. Yeah, but our ghetto was quite good actually. It was the first ghetto, but it somehow maintained the sort of conditions. Mm. that some of the ghettos when in, in terrible situations like people had nowhere to live they, they had to sleep in the in the street people were dying and then there was no one to bury them and they were just lying until somebody took pity on them and got managed to get them to a cemetery because we're not allowed out of the ghetto oh you had to stay in the ghetto at all times yeah at first, we had something, and I can't remember clearly now. Mm. Um, we could have a few hours outside, but it, it very quickly closed, and it was a closed ghetto. 
only officials were able to come in and out and the workers who were going out, working parties. Mm. And the people who had a work permit were really in a way better off because mm. they had some contact with people outside and sometimes they were able to bring something back, some food. There were so many variations of how people lived mm. and whether they were able to help themselves to something or have more friends or perhaps more money mm. that they managed to preserve because there used to be sort of placards going up in the on the wall, ghetto walls, to say not external walls, in, that's internally, and they used to tell you, well, one of the things was we had to... Um, go to a place on a certain day and bring with us all our valuables that could be jewelry and money and then we were to do that by a certain time in a certain place and one of the very valuable things in those days was if you had a fur coat mm. that was really that could save you life because we had very harsh winters yeah uh, but others came with it. But in any case, they could do what they wanted with us. They could take everything from us. We had absolutely no power. We were powerless. We were at their mercy. What would happen if someone went out of the ghetto without permission? Well, that happened quite often. Um, well, they could get shot. They could get put in prison or deported once those started because everything sort of went slowly at first mm. and then gradually it got worse and worse. People were going out. They, they, they were smuggling themselves out of the ghetto in order to um, do some business, get some extra food, um, know someone outside who could do something for them. On one occasion, I was sent out of the ghetto by my father to give a message to some farmers that were delivering stuff mm. later that day. And uh, my mother was very much against that. She didn't want them to go. She, she, was, she was in a panic. She, but my father said, well, what can happen to her? She doesn't look Jewish. She is, you know, she, and no one will do anything. Anyway, she, she agreed to it eventually, but... I just walked out of some place that I can't even remember. And I walked to that farm outside town. And um, the people, and these people were supposed to deliver goods that day. Uh, that would have been like flour and corn to be milled and, and all sorts of things. I'm not sure of every detail. They received me very well. I gave them the message and... Um, they asked me to sit down. They gave me a glass of milk, which was really nice. And eventually I said, well, I'm going back now. And they said, well, don't, don't go. Wait, because we're going. We're delivering the goods. You can have a lift on our cart. It, it was a cart and horses. Because even though there were cars, some cars, not a lot. Mm. I mean, they weren't for the use of, of the likes of, of my my father because uh, they were the, out of the question so um they gave me a lift i was sitting on top of all these sacks of of 
flour and corn and all sorts of things. We were stopped by some German policemen. And as soon as that happened, I said, well, I have nothing to do with these men. I just got a lift. I was walking and they gave me a lift. And I don't know how, because I hadn't been prepared for that. Yeah. And they, and, uh, they said, that's all right. You know, you can go. And of course, they were taken to the police station. The food, this, everything was confiscated. And it, it you know, it's a terrible, probably financial loss. I don't know. This is what I'm assuming. And that was it. But I had this, the, the, the presence of mind to, to sort of disconnect myself yeah. from these people yeah. and say, this has nothing to do with me. It was like an instinct. Yeah. Because you knew. Yeah. Intrinsically that. Yes, by then we all knew what was happening to yeah. people. And yeah. So and that was a real bit of luck that I got back safely. Yeah. You said you didn't look Jewish. What was perceived as looking Jewish at that time? It's very much the same as today. You know, if one's got dark hair, you know, black hair and, and dark eyes and... I don't know. People have their own perception, don't they? Uh, I never looked Jewish. So. It's always so people, people talk lucky. about noses, like noses, the Jews have large yes, noses. And, yeah. Yeah. But it, it's, it, it's exactly the same. It, it's gone on. Yeah. With, you know, Jews. And, and what year was it that your family were separated? And, and, and how did that take place? In 1942, the war started in 39, mm. was nearly 40, so for a couple of years later, about two and a half, um, the rumors started circulating that the ghetto was going to be dissolved and everybody's going to be deported. The rumors included the deportation places like Treblinka, Majdanek, Sobibor, these were all death places. Nobody survived there. The transport came, and within a few hours, everybody was dead. So they weren't labor camps. No. So, of course, everybody was in panic. Mm. And um, people tried to find some, some sort of way of saving themselves. Mm. And there wasn't very much that one could do. But one could possibly smuggle oneself out of the ghetto and live in the open or in the sewers or or perhaps find a friend who will hide a member of the family, but very few people would hide the whole family. Um, and it, it was real panic. And my father, together with my uncle, Joseph Klein, um, they were introduced to a man from Czernstochowa, it's a town in Poland, Poland, very beautiful town. Um, this man was sort of half German. They called him Volksdeutsche. Mm -hmm. um, he was of German origin, but he was living in Poland. Mm -hmm. So he had a lot of privileges that Poles normally didn't have. And he was prepared to hire two Jewish girls for money. This was going to be a business arrangement. Mm -hmm. He came to Piotrkov, he actually came into the ghetto, he was smuggled in, and uh, they did the deal around the table. I saw them sitting there talking, but I mean, I, I have no idea what, what, what they were saying, what they were doing. 
And um, this man would hide two girls, my cousin, who was an only child, Uja, and me. And arrangements were made for our traveling there. They, they were paid, he was paid in advance for this. And then he said he would come back next week and um, take me mm -hmm. to Częstochowa. And the week after, he'd come back for my cousin, take her mm -hmm. on the train. Now, traveling by train was also very scary because there were usually police, uh, you know, police and uh, soldiers traveling, but also they were on the lookout for Jews because there was actually a reward for turning in Jews. Like a monetary ordinary, reward. Yes, monetary reward. And the ordinary people, if they can get a Jew to the station, to the, to, to the police station, well, they were rewarded. So we weren't safe anywhere. No. And even though we were fair and blue-eyed, there is something you cannot hide, and that's if you're scared. It shows in your eyes. Yeah. And um, it was a terrible journey with a lot of fear, but we both got there safely, and we found ourselves in a house with a um, middle-aged couple. The man who made all the arrangements, he was the... Um, son-in-law of these people and we were to stay with them mm -hmm. it was quite a sort of uh, large house not very large but was a good sized house we had a room to ourselves and um, I can't remember all the details now but I I know that we were very scared we we're supposed to be uh, relatives from who had come to stay from Warsaw Right. So we had a false address to remember, false names. And if there was a knock on the door, sometimes it was okay to, uh, for us to be present. Other times they would quickly hide us under the bed or into a cupboard, anywhere out of sight. And um, we, we lived in constant fear. Uh, and uh, we were very vulnerable anyway. Do you, do you remember saying goodbye to your mum and dad and your brother and sister? Do you know that's strange? I don't. I don't remember there being a sort of special parting. I can't imagine. Well, I can try to imagine what my, now that I've, um, I've got my own children and grandchildren that they must have been worried stiff, but they didn't show it, and I don't remember the actual parting mm. because I haven't talked about it from the beginning. No one's ever asked me, and, and it's just gone from my memory, but I know we went one at a time. Yeah. How long were you hidden for? Well, I and don't actually know the dates, but... It was a few weeks. Oh, it wasn't long. It wasn't months or a year. Could have been a few months. Mm -hmm. But the most terrible, terrible and tragic things happened. Because my cousin, who was um, an only child, was very homesick. She couldn't bear to be away from her parents. And she was terrified of Germans. And she was... 
she just wanted to go home. And she was so adamant about it that in the end she said she wants to be taken home. And the men said she can't because the deportations are still going on. Mm. They took quite a while, a few weeks. She said that her parents had very good friends in Piotrkov, in our hometown, and they will um, take her in because they're, uh, they're um, hiding the, uh, her parents' valuables. Mm-hmm. They'll take her in. And he said, okay. And off they went. And now I was on my own, which was much worse. Yeah. And um, eventually, I won't go into all the details about, there are a lot of individual things that sort of happened, but it's such a long story. Um, Anyway, I was there for a very long time. On one occasion we went to visit, there was someone in the family got um, engaged and they were having an engagement party. And we went to visit them. Uh, to to the party, and they took me with. And she got engaged to a German soldier. And there was a real party spirit. I don't remember a lot of it. And um, I got through it. I was there with a German soldier, imagine. As I say, I can't remember how long I, I was there, but eventually the time came to go home. Then I was to meet my father or in a flour mill, mm-hmm. which before the war belonged to him. He was in the flour business. So he had a mill in partnership with his brother and, and another man. And actually, my, my father had a brother. So there were two health gods. My surname was health god then. Two health gods, two health god brothers. But my, my mother had two brothers also in Piotrkov, so there were two, and she, her name was Klein, her maiden name was Klein. Anyway, we, we got to the place where I was meeting my father, which it was a mill, mm. which before the war belonged to my father in partnership with his brother and another man. Now he was lucky to have a job there. And we went up to an attic quite high up, and um, there was my father waiting for me. But also my uncle, Joseph Klein, Ija's father. Mm-hmm. My uncle looked at us and he went white. He said, where's my daughter? And the um, I told you before that you took them to the friends. Yeah. Took her to the friends. So he said, well, I took her to your friends and I left her there. And my uncle said, but she isn't at the friends. These were really good and devoted friends. He said, she's not there. Where is she? What have you done with my child? And I still remember my uncle vividly with his hands behind the back, looking at the ground, pacing there and back, saying, what have you done with my child? I mean, I, I, it's such a vivid memory. And really, that's the end of the story. Nobody knows what happened to her. You never heard, you never found out. And not knowing is the most terrible thing because you, your mind goes crazy. And um, my 
uncle was arrested soon after that, and so was my father and my other two uncles, the, the two Helfgott brothers and the two Klein brothers, their name was Klein, uh, were arrested and some other people as well. They were kept in prison for some time. I can't remember the time scale. And then they were taken to the Jewish cemetery all lined up against the wall. But they, re they released one Helfgott and one Klein. So they released my father and one uncle, but not Ija's father, right. his brother. And, um, well, they were all shot in the cemetery. And um, those that survived in the family did put up a, a sort of um, special memorial for them. And um, after that, I went back into the ghetto. But my aunt, I'll just tell you very little of what she said. She was so devastated at losing her daughter. But I think that she lived the rest of the war years, which then included camps and all sorts of things. Um, she used to thought, well, she'll be somewhere after the war. I'll find her. Yeah. But she disappeared without trace. And she found out from these good friends who were hiding their valuables that um, the men came. They collected one um, case with valuables, whatever there was in it. And he left with Ija and the case. And that's all they ever knew. All they know. And, you know, when you don't know, your mind just goes wild. And she said to me on one occasion, um, my Ija had to go into the gas chamber by herself. There was nobody to hold her hand. And, I mean, we don't know. We don't know. And and I often think, what, they could have just chucked her in the river or they could have just cut her throat. Maybe. They, you think of the most mm. terrible things. I have to say, my aunt always remained a very loving aunt towards me. But towards the end of her life, she, um, I think she used to mistake me. I used to visit her. She lived in Israel then. And um, on one occasion, she said to me, you after all my daughter. I don't know in what context I, I was leaving and we're saying bye-bye, and she was in a nursing home. And um, the terrible story. No, that's terrible. And, and how, how did you then end up being taken to a concentration camp? Well, um, when I got back from these people. He handed me over to my father. And I went, I was smuggled back into the ghetto uh, with the working party. Mm -hmm. And I didn't tell you any figures, but in our town originally had 15,000 Jews. And um, during the war in the ghetto, it, the numbers grew to 28,000 because people from all around 
Jewish people. And also they extended the German border mm -hmm. uh, further into Poland and all the Jewish people living there had to be in some ghetto and lots of them found their way into ours. But, and it was so overcrowded that um, lots of people um, died through um, various, um, various illnesses. There were various, I can't think of the word. Probably the, like uh, cholera and TB. And yes, all that sort of thing. But yeah. Um, a lot of typhus and things like that. Um, so a lot of people died through epidemics and it reduced the numbers to 24,000. Right. Um, and then, and it was still terribly overcrowded. But then um, the deportations took place and... Um, we were sent, uh, and I was in hiding during the deportations. Uh, and after the deportations, there were only 2,200 people left. Oh my goodness. The rest were deported to their deaths, to Treblinka. A lot of people who were in hiding started coming back into the ghetto. The ghetto was now reduced to two half streets, where it was a whole area before and still overcrowded, people were returning and the Germans knew about it, but they turned a blind eye, but they had their plans. And when I came back, I went with my father into the ghetto with this column of workers. And when they thought, when I got back, first of all, I found my family intact. And my father, my brother had a work permit. And my father, mother, and sister were living with um, Christian families during the, the, uh, the duration of the deportations. They all three different families, and they all survived the deportations. So we were a family. Yeah. That was very unusual. Most whole families disappeared and some there were one or two left and um but we were a complete family but alas not for long because when ev when they thought everybody was back then they started rounding them up they were calling them the illegals so on one occasion they stormed into a room where i was with my mother and sister and a lot of other people it was quite crowded and i was in bed i just climbed into that bed because no one had their own bed because people who worked at night um other people used their beds and 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 vice versa it was just whatever we could manage and they took everybody away except me because my mother said that I wasn't well, I was in bed, as if that mattered. But this policeman said, that's all right, she can stay. And my mother said, as they were leaving, she said, stay there, don't move, don't go anywhere. And when father comes home, tell him what happened. Now, they were rounding up people like that all the time, taking them to the, um, uh, to the synagogue, which was now very dilapidated. It was our grand synagogue, but 
now it had be, had some bombing and it had uh, was used as stables and was in a terrible state. And they were rounding people up. They were sort of searching through the ghetto day in, day out, and um, keeping them there without any food or water. Some people managed to get out, but they weren't. My father got my mother out, but not my sister. And of course, my mother wouldn't live without, leave without her. So on the 20th of December, 1942, they marched them in groups of 50. They, the first group, uh, well, they marched them to a forest called Rakov, nearby forest. And um, the first group found their communal grave ready waiting for them. And uh, the others followed. I, I'm not sure, I think they had to dig the next grave. But there were over 500 people and they were, they were murdered in, in the most shocking way. Um, this was quite well known. It was carried out by the Einsatzgruppen or the 101 Battalion. And it was happening all over Europe. And the largest one, the largest number of people that got killed was actually in Kiev, which is now Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, there they killed, I think, over 3,000 people. In ours, it was over 500 people. And that included your, yeah. your mum and your sister? Yes. So that's how I lost my mother and sister. But there's... Um, it was absolutely shocking. There, there are a lot of books written about it. And there were now three of us left. And there were altogether 2,200, and they were designated to two, um, two factories. One was a plywood producing um, place called mm -hmm. Bugai, and the other one was uh, glassworks. Mm -hmm. um, and we we were going to all be moved from there to these workplaces. But um, during that time, it took a little while, um, one of my aunts was rounded up, a health got aunt on my father's side. And she was taken away screaming, who will look after my child? And uh, it was... Um, and at that time, I was the only female member of the Healthcourt family left. I was 12, and she was five, and I looked after her. And she survived the war miraculously. When we were being, when the ghetto was being uh, liquidated, and we were all being uh, either deported or people had their workplaces, but Apart from that, there were still some people like myself, children and some, and their mothers and a few old men. And then the little ghetto got smaller and smaller and um, the, the remnants were being deported. And there were only, as I said, women and children and some old men, and I was among them. And we were outside the ghetto, we were standing, it was a deportation, so that's the only deportation that I witnessed a bit of, 
lorries were arriving, people were getting on and they were taking them away. We didn't know where they were going. There was, oh, there was a commotion, there were a lot of children among them and they were all, and they were crying and some were being hit and shot. And, and it, it was quite horrific to be going through it. And I was there with my little cousin, I was towards the end of this line. And um, I looked sideways and I saw a German officer standing there, a lieutenant. I don't know how I knew he was a lieutenant. Maybe I found that out later. I went up to him and said, I've been separated from my father and brother. They're inside the ghetto. Can I go back to them? And he looked very surprised, amazed, uh, perhaps a little amused. But he called over a Jewish policeman and said, take her back inside the ghetto. And um, on the way, I said to him, just a minute, I've got to get my cousin. And he said, you can't take her because she hasn't had permission. And I said, but I can't go back without her. What, what do you want me to do? He said, well, she hasn't had permission. And I said, well, I can't go back and ask for permission. And that was a real dilemma for me. I so wanted to be with my father and brother, and I couldn't. I was going to be deported with Anne. So anyway, I carried on and on, and eventually he relented and said, oh, okay, quickly, take and go into the ghetto. And that was a real bit of luck, because I know what happened to those children on that transport. And they've got a memorial in that forest, same where my mother's about it's a few a few months later. They did keep them for a little while, but then they were all killed and buried in the forest. So we were now left. I had my little cousin, and we were designated to the plywood factory. Mm -hmm. I started work at the age of twelve, so I was a slave laborer and um, my cousin of course didn't she was very small and frail she was five and uh, and I looked after her so and we were housed in barracks the men separately from women the men at one end and women at the other end but I used to see my father and brother occasionally because we, we could mix after work and we could um, sometimes at work and um, conditions were very poor. We lived in barracks on, on bunks. Um, food was very short. We, we worked long hours. And we were there for about, um, about 18 months when one day they walked us to the railway station when men separately from women mm. and... Um, we were being deported. We didn't know where we were going, but I can tell you now that the men were deported to Buchenwald concentration camp. And I, with the women, found ourselves um, in um, Ravensbrück concentration camp. Now, Ravensbrück is actually, I learned that recently that it is was the biggest women's camp in Germany. Mm. And when, on arrival, the first thing they did was to take our details because, you know, they were meticulous at record-keeping. And that record exists. It's online. 
Um, and then uh, we, they took everything away from us, but we didn't have very much, but whatever we brought as rent, we had to undress. Uh, our heads were shaved. Um, they took our clothing away from us. We went through cold communal showers. And when we came out at the other end, um, we were given the concentration camp garb, the striped jacket and skirt, and some clogs. I don't know what they were, actually. Uh, they weren't proper clogs. And um, when we looked at one another, we couldn't recognize each other. And that really does something to you. Yeah. It, you know, when you stripped of your personality, yeah. we, we just all looked the same. It, it really sort of takes the will to live away from you. And we're really giving up. Yeah, I mean, they took your whole identity. Yeah. I mean, if you said to a woman now, without all the other stuff, I'm going to mm. shave your head and yeah. take your clothes off you, that alone in itself um, is unbelievably traumatic. Yeah. It, it was awful. And this showed itself very quickly because my aunt, Franja Klein, died, well, she went into hospital and I don't know exactly when she died. They don't seem to have the record of that, but um, we were deported again two months later uh, and she was left behind. We didn't even know whether she was alive or dead, but she did die in Ravensbrook. Uh, I had two aunts on that trap. So the, the other one was Ijaz, my cousin who disappeared, yeah. Her, the, yeah, her mother. So, and she was such a good aunt to me, Ija's mother, that I didn't work there because I was only 12. No, I was 14 and I still didn't work. But um, my aunt worked and she worked in the fields picking, uh, you know, um, potatoes and vegetables. And on one occasion she brought me a carrot or, or turnip, I can't remember what it was, but she brought me something. And that was so kind because she could have been killed for that, for smuggling in something to eat. Mm. So... Um, but you must have been all starving there because yeah. they didn't really give you... Did, very, did, I mean, did you get any meals or drinks? Well, we used to get something in the morning. I can't remember what it was. I think it... It was, it, it, they called it coffee, but they called it the Rizatz coffee. Rizatz means imitation in German. Um, and they, and, and we had half a slice of bread, something like that. Then we had soup. And I think the soup was in the evening, so we had another bit of bread lunchtime. I can't remember clearly the, the actual things we had, but it wasn't very much. People were really dying in great numbers. Um, but we didn't know what was to come. So much as we complained, well, there was um, much worse in store for us. So we um, were there about 
between two and three months, about two and a half months, when they decided to deport us again. And now, after a shorter journey, because the last journey took four and a half days in cattle trucks. So you were just bunched up together like animals? Yeah. And um, Were you standing or sitting? Like how? We were standing, but some people couldn't stand, so they would sit and others would stand. It, it, I just remembered it, it as um, sort of um, like a punishment um, because we couldn't sit. Sometimes we did sit down and there was no facilities, no toilets or anything. There was a bucket in the corner. It, it was absolutely terrible. And four and a half days. I didn't even remember that, but that is what is recorded. I read that, so I know that that's correct. And um, when we didn't know where we were going, but we ended up in Bergen-Belsen. Now, I always say to people when I tell them the story, especially at schools, I said, well, do you know about Bergen-Belsen? Because it's so well known in this country because it was liberated by the British. And, um, well, when we arrived in Bergen-Belsen, it was very different from the arrival at uh, Ravensbrück. First of all, they didn't have a proper railway station, and we stopped, the train stopped all many miles away. And uh, we had to sort of jump out from quite a height, and we walked to the camp. When we arrived there, it, uh, it was so overcrowded that they didn't have any room for us. So they put us up in a very big tent, enormous tent, and various things happened there. I, I really am trying to bring it to an end, so I can't tell you everything. But after, and there were people from all over Europe. And although I was aware of that before, at that moment, I was more so because I heard all these different languages. You see, when we're in Poland, I heard Polish. We, we stayed there overnight, and in the morning, they took us into the main camp. And I'll just tell you a fraction of what we saw what faced us, or the first thing was that the the smell and the smog. It was up, the smell was indescribable. And there was a sort of smog. And and the reason for the smog was that they were burning bodies because they didn't know what to do with them. Um, And uh, there were, but there were dead bodies everywhere. Well, there were people there, but they were really, skeletons and they were shuffling along aimlessly and as they were shuffling they just um, collapse and die in front of you just yes there were just dead bodies and and piles of bodies as well and as we were walking I heard from someone that there's a children's home somewhere in the camp and I quickly changed direction with my little cousin and um we, we found it, we're interviewed by two women, Dr. Bimkon and Sister Luba. You hear about, you know, you come across their name if you read about Bergen-Belsen. We, you know, we had a very long interview and in the end she turned, one of them turned to me and said, 
you know, we are also very overcrowded. But in any case, you, she pointed at me, are too old. I was by then 14. And I said, that's all right. Will you take my cousin? And she said, oh, yes, we're going to take her anyway. But there was no way Anne would stay without me. She absolutely refused. You were like her mother, essentially. Yeah, she, she just, there's no way she would leave me. And, in the, and they relented and took us both in. And that was a real bit of luck because we wouldn't have survived on, on the main camp. A, 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 situ yeah. a situation like that really lays bare what kind of a person you are. Because even though you're fighting to survive and your, your, your instinct is to live and save your own life, I think it really shows what kind of a person you are, the fact that even though you were hungry and dehumanized and traumatized, you were looking after your little cousin and putting her first before you and to be 14 years old and to have yeah. that instinct to put someone else before you is an incredible thing. Can you tell me about your survival instinct? How, how does that work? Because obviously we hear about fight or flight, but what drove you to want to survive? I wasn't consciously striving to survive. It, it almost doesn't sound true, but I really, I know, I remember my thoughts and my actions, and I really, I wasn't determined to survive, but I must have been subconsciously because I was doing everything to try and survive. Yeah. But a lot of it was luck because uh, I don't know why those people that were hiding us in Chenstohova, why they didn't do away with me as well because it would have been easier for them not to have to face my father and my uncle. He could have just said, well, they both died or were arrested or something happened. I mean, there's no story to it. You don't know. And But I, I just got out of there. There was nothing that I've done to, to help me get out of that situation, to survive that situation. No, but so. just being here today and being able to tell your story mm. after going through something so mentally traumatic as well and physically traumatic mm. is, a, is a testament to... Yes, people often say, you know, I very often, I tell the story, I used to speak to schools a lot, I don't these days, but they always, when I finished telling them the story, then someone would pipe up and say, so how did you survive? And, and I mean, what could I tell them? I would tell them, well, you just heard my story, so you must make up your own, own mind. Yeah. I don't know how I survived. I was just lucky. The fact is, there's a lot of great element of luck. Mm. But the survival doesn't just stop there. And the survival is throughout your whole life. It's living with what you went through afterwards as well. It's not just surviving that period of time. Mm. It's very much your entire existence living with that. So how was it that you got out of Bergen-Belsen? Well, after that, after the war finished, my life was in other people's hands then. In the sense that, all the decisions were made for me. I didn't 
for instance, say, well, I want to go back to Poland, or I want to be somewhere else. Or it, first of all, I was very ill when the war finished. I had typhus. I had got over the, the, the worst, but I still had typhus. And in fact, I remember lying on my upper bunk by the window, and somehow I must have come into consciousness. I was looking out, and I saw people running. I didn't know why they were running or where they were running. All I could think of was, how have they got the strength to run? Because um, typhus is so debilitating, you, you just can't move. So um, that was the end of the war. And we were liberated by the wonderful British soldiers. And they really were amazing in what they did for us. They had to make provision. I mean, they had nothing. They had suddenly to prepare so many beds, 2,000 beds for the hospital alone. And um, well, anyway, I wasn't thinking. I wasn't doing anything. I was just being attended to. So I found that after the children's home was emptied, I still stayed there. I think I was on my own, on my bunk, and I was only taken out two, two days later because by then they had prepared some other accommodation. It, it, and there were dead bodies everywhere. There were, it, it was just what these young people, there were young soldiers, some of them, and they came, some of the students came to help. Um, anyway, they came back for me two days later. I don't remember the two days, what happened during that. I was probably sleeping a lot of the time. And they came with a stretcher, two soldiers with a stretcher. And I said to them, oh, I don't need that, I'll walk. And of course, I got out and collapsed. I couldn't even stand. So maybe that gives you some indication of that I must have been so, I thought I could walk when I couldn't stand. Mm. So um, I must have perhaps been very optimistic during that period. How do you remember how it felt when you finally got to leave and you knew you were gonna be brought I, to safety? I remember a kind of happiness to have food and to have to be in a clean place and to uh, be human again. But then that was overcome by, well, who survived? The, the, the grief of... To overcome the grief, yeah. Did you know at that point who had survived and who hadn't? Did you know that your no. brother Ben was alive? No, no. I knew my mother and, and, and sister, had, they hadn't survived, but I, there was still my brother and, and father, but my father didn't survive. And my brother, I learned quite a lot later that he did survive and came to England. How many years later? Um... No, it wasn't years, it was uh, perhaps a year. 
Uh, but I was sent to Sweden after the war. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben was sent to, to England yeah. after the war. So eventually, and there were people who were going around uh, and and taking, you know, um, they were taking numbers and names and and see who survived to put people together, families. And and some people weren't reunited for a very long time. And I heard apparently one after 50 years because they had gone, this particular one had gone to um, Australia in those days that was so far away. It sounds like it's come nearer now with <laughs> all the transport available. So you moved to the UK after about a year and yeah, you were well, reunited I with moved, No, I moved to Sweden. Mm-hmm. I was in Sweden for nearly two years, and halfway through that, we Ben and I, well, Ben found me, and then it was arranged by the organization that brought the boys over. We, we refer to them as the boys because they were the, in the majority. Um, and um, yeah, the, the decisions were made for me. I didn't make any decisions myself. Yeah. So um, I ended up in England. And what became of your life after? Well, I um, I very much wanted to go to Israel because when they were they were the young people were their hope to sort of and you know when Israel was established that so there would be young people there. I was with a group of children, and I, I was very we were very devoted to one another and. After the war, we had really a nice time in a way because we were sort of um, savoring mm. this, this freedom and the food and the kindness. And it, I mean, it was all so wonderful. Mm. Uh, and when I came to England, I was very involved with various clubs and things. I, my first priority was to learn English. And I was brought over by the Central British Fund, mm. which is which brought over all the kinder transport, and and actually, every person that came over had to be guaranteed fifty pounds. And I found out my guarantor, uh, but of course very late. Too late. He he isn't alive now to say thank you. But it was a fifty-pound guarantee for every person that came into England, and this this organisation was wonderful. They were absolutely, and because I came on my own, I had sort of individual attention. They weren't dealing with a group; they were dealing with one person. Because I came about two years later, mm-hmm. so um, I had lodgings. They organised all that. I learned English. That was the first priority. And uh, then I did a secretarial course, which was my choice. They they asked me what I'd like to do. And um, within a year, I was um, working, and um, I was self-supporting. Wow. Very little. My first job was um, £4.50 a week. My goodness. <laughs> but I didn't complain, and I was able to live on that. That's incredible. That's amazing. And then you subsequently met your husband. I met my husband. I was really married to a wonderful man. I often think 
why did he choose me? He and he he was already um, he had finished his study. Actually, his studies were interrupted, and he was in uh, in um, the army for five and a half years. And he came back to England from abroad in the army. Um, he always used to say, well, I came to England the same time as Marla. And I thought, oh, you can't compare that. I thought he just wanted to make me feel that I'm, you know, everything was quite normal. I came under different circumstances from him, obviously. And I thought he was just saying it because he wanted to identify with me. But in fact, after he died, and when I looked through his papers, he did come to England the same time, I think it was the same day or the next day, um, because he was abroad with the army from Sweden. I mean, we didn't know one another, obviously. But who wouldn't want to be with a woman like you? I mean, <laughs> someone with that much grit and determination and then has supported themselves. I never saw it that way. I suppose looking back, I, I can see that I obviously did a lot towards my survival. But at the time, it didn't feel like it. I was only doing sort of ordinary things. Um, I don't think it would be right to do to record this podcast without recognizing the fact that right now in 2023 in the UK, there has been nearly a 1500% increase in anti-Semitic crimes. And I can never ever compare my experience with yours. I hope I never have to. But for me, it's felt very, in its own way, dehumanizing. You know, celebrities you were a fan mm. of you don't like anymore because they've made comments and you kind of lose yourself. People you respected, people you worked with, and especially knowing what's happened to my ancestors, it does make me and, and a lot of people around me very, very fearful for the future and whether we have a future here mm -hmm. in the UK. Do you see any similarities between what is starting right now to what you saw before the war to the Jewish people? Uh, well, I'll tell you, perhaps I'm very naive, but I could never imagine this happening in England. I think it's the best country in the world. And although there is a lot of anti-Semitism now, and it's all coming, well, the current war between Israel and, and, and Gaza is not helping and there's some extraordinary things happening there, which are really awful. And, and when I say that they're awful from the point of view that they're fighting with one another and um, hopefully the outcome will be sort of fair to both of them. But I can't imagine that any of those pogroms that we know about, we've heard about, I personally don't know about them, but I've, I've heard of them, and all those um, other anti-Semitic outbursts and happenings, I can't imagine them happening in this country to the same extent that they did in those days. Mm -hmm. 
pogroms where people were being killed in the street, anywhere. It was like a free-for-all to kill Jews. Mm. Well, I can't imagine that ever here. I know the statistics are absolutely shocking and really frightening. Mm. And I, I really don't know what to say. I, I, I don't think it can happen in England that they would ever kill Jews in the street and get away with it. No, but they are calling for our blood in the streets now. Well, they are, and, and I, I know. I'm very shocked by it, but the people who are doing it don't really represent the British people totally because there's been such a big influx of other religions and... Um, and perhaps the, the, the English people may, some of them may feel it, but not to the extent that we see it. Mm. I, you know, I really, I haven't gone into it carefully and studied it. I read the statistics and I'm horrified. But there's one difference now, that the Jews know how to defend themselves. Even though they, it's heavily criticized. <laughs> yeah, but they can't do it with the impunity that they used to do it. Mm. So I, I'm being optimistic. I'm an optimist. That's comforting. And it certainly makes me very, very, very proud to be Jewish, especially hearing your story. I see it as a privilege rather than an affliction. I, I'm really proud of my Jewish heritage and you should be incredibly proud of everything you've achieved. I know that you've made it your life's mission, educating people about what happened during the Holocaust and... May, it, may people hear about this for generations to come as well. But thank you so much, Marla. This has been very emotional, but yeah. very important. So thank you so much for being here. If you would like to support the Holocaust Educational Trust, I have put a link in the description of this episode where you can donate money to help us share the story and spread awareness so that generations to come know what really happened.